0: Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. Great to be with you. Our topic today is generational racism, using the genogram to see and slay it. Generational racism, using the genogram to see and slay it. And so I want to take a pause on uh, the part two on why a quiet time is not enough, uh, simply because of the unique moment what we're living in. Uh, and I want to speak especially, clear as possible directly to the issues uh, around race, justice, and how EH discipleship intersects with that. I actually put out a statement that's on our website. You can go to emotionallyhealthy.org justice and uh, read it. It's a short two-page document. But I want to talk about in this podcast and at least two more following this about where and how I believe that emotionally healthy discipleship specifically connects and relates and speaks uh, to the day in which we're living not just here in the United States but around the world around issues of racism and injustice in particular but uh before I begin let me just give it a little of my history and a couple of provisos uh before I launch into such a, such a vast topic you know my time alone with Jesus this morning God has led me to Psalm 131 where uh David writes my heart is not proud of my eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I still quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a wean child is my soul within me. And talking about an issue so massive like racism and injustice uh, is a great matter and really too wonderful for me. And uh, so... I want to say that going into this, that I come to this recognizing uh, my limits uh, and the partiality at which I I speak. I mean, I've been in this issue really since I came to Christ 44 years ago, Uh, pastored a church, a multiracial church, that we uh, really sought to express the gospel through the church Uh, and you know, working out, how do you bridge racial barriers uh, and cultural and gender and class as well. And I've been in the church since then as well. So it's been a long journey. And we raised our four daughters uh, in the multiracial context their whole lives. And so they were minorities in school and church and neighborhood. Uh, in fact, I remember sending my first daughter out to, to college and saying, you've got to go and uh, into a white environment uh, and experience that you are white and um, get a grip on you know who you are a bit and... Um, and so I speak to you as a white person, not an African American or a person of color. And so there's a certain limit in that I could never fully enter in uh, to the issue uh, because it's not my skin and uh, and as a person with power and privilege, I can always walk away from it. Uh, but I do believe, however, that the gospel uh, and of course emotional health and racial reconciliation are, are inseparable. And we see this in Jesus and Scripture, and but how it works out is going to be different for each of us depending on our context. And so mine was specifically within a, a um, local church context. But let me begin with two comments that were made this past week that were significant for me as we begin to frame the discussion. Um, and the first was, you know, comes out of you know Condoleezza Rice, who was a former uh, security advisor uh, for one of our presidents, and and she talks about she's, she's, she's African American as well, and. And how this is this is different. You know, This in, in the wake of Floyd's death, she writes that there's a shock, a grief, and outrage. Uh, and, it, and typically we'd say, oh, well, these feelings will fade away and will return to our lives. But she writes, this time it looks different. Uh, it looks like it's actually going to move us to some positive action. And uh, I, I think she's right on that. Um, the, the, the level of protest, at least happening right now, uh, is really unprecedented. And it was T.D. Jakes, uh, who's an African-American pastor here in the United States, uh, writes about, he was asked, what gives you hope? And he said, it's, it's the numbers of people that are now protesting, prominent, influential people. Uh, it's kind of like the cream is to the top and, and white people are having an awakening. And I think that is true. There's so many white people having an awakening right now. It's, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, but he said for black people, it's really a justification. And he compared, it, he compared uh, the situation to like a molested child Part of the damage is uh, you're, of being molested is you're not believed when you tell people, and he said for now it's reached a tipping point where what we have said for years is now being believed, and so for us it's deeply emotional, and we have to sort out what do we do with all that emotion. I thought it was a, an, an an excellent illustration or image, you know, for us and how we're coming at this thing differently. So, uh, my concern as we talk about this is that this is you know the protests are good and especially for you know white people like myself and they, but the question for me is is long term it's this is a a life this is a, an understanding of Jesus and what it means to be a Christ follower and i've got to sort out what's god's will for me and not simply just jump on a bandwagon right now cuz it's very popular or the emotion of the moment but uh what does it mean i should walk this out that's all i want to take a couple of podcasts on this and talk about genogram today but I want to talk about the need for a deep spirituality next week, a desert spirituality, and the whole, then the whole issue of present and incarnation and how central that is, because we're dealing with something here that's beyond simply understanding history and systemic racism. We're dealing with powers and principalities, something that is deeply demonic and powerful, and uh, it needs to be carefully, uh, prayerfully monitored or thought through and approached. So let's talk about the Genogram and specifically today and how that can actually r- uh, really serve what we're involved in here today. So the Genogram is basically a tool of mapping out your family of origin over three to four generations. That, that, that's its, on a personal level application. So here's the biblical principle, uh, and then we'll make some applications to. And the principle is this, uh, the blessings sins of our families have impact lasting for at least three to four generations. And so we see in scripture this idea of what happens in one generation often repeats itself in the next. It's built into God's very nature. And so we see scriptures like, you know, after Moses says, Show me your glory, and the Lord passes in front of Moses, and the Lord says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished punishes the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation and as this great new Old Testament scholar shared with me that the word punish uh, means tends to be repeated that what happens in one generation sin wise tends to get repeated in the next we see that same com- that same word he punishes the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation you see that repeated throughout uh, you know scripture and so that's all we see in families for example Things like divorce and abuse and addictions being passed on generation to generation or uh, underachievers, or inability to have stable relationships, etc. And so that, that's the basic principle. And we'll apply it not just individually in a few minutes, but as well uh, you know, gen- to generations and history and churches. Uh, but then the second principle is that when we become a Christian, we're birthed into the new family of Jesus, into a new culture. Uh, Jesus' family. And discipleship is being reparented in that family of, how do I do life now in the new family of Jesus? And and Jesus clearly established the church is the first family. He said things like, those who love father and mother more than me are not worthy of me. And he's very blunt about it. When we come to Christ, we have a new father, a new inheritance, um, you know, a new name, uh, new resources, new power. And so our family uh, and our culture uh, are now second. Our first uh, family is God's family. Uh, that's radical. And so we've been legally adopted into that family. We have Our debts have been canceled. And uh, so we now are part of an international family that crosses race and culture and nationality. And we will all be gathered around the Lamb in that final day uh, through the blood of Jesus. He is who determines who we are. So then discipleship, obviously, is this long process of of putting off our the sinful patterns, our family of origin and our culture. And so the family you grew up in and the culture is not the current dynamic dynamic in your life as a Christ follower, it's, it's Jesus. And so now we apply this in emotional discipleship specifically, uh, especially in the, in the EH discipleship course, to our families of origin and to, you know, the, to kind of introduce people to the whole framework. And so, for example, I, I, uh, what, I, what I brought into the church, uh, I was 17 years a Christian never thought about Genogram and how the past impacts the present. Uh and but once I got into this and I was at that point pastoring a church, uh, it was revolutionary because I had I, I saw and became aware of how much my family of origin had impacted who I am. So it was things as simple as, you know, I was I was over responsible as a pastor and leader because I was doing for others what they could and should do for themselves. But it came out of my family of origin where my mother had mental illness and I As a a fourth child in the family, my responsibility was to take care of her, uh, take care of mom, take care of mom, didn't have a normal childhood. And so that over-responsibility for everybody around me just became a way of life. And so I naturally brought it it into pastoring, into our church, and uh, again, really negatively impacted pastoring. I came out of an abused background, physical, emotional, quite severe abuse, and so I didn't have any sense of boundaries, uh, self-care. I don't deserve a, a you know, I, I, I just, I didn't allow allowed people to disrespect me. Uh, my, whole, my whole understanding of marriage expectations, gender roles was all built on my, again, my culture, Italian-American and my family. Uh, I could go on. My identity was in doing, uh, work, work, work. Uh, it wasn't in being loved. I'd never experienced experience that, you know, as a kid growing up. And it wasn't okay to make mistakes. You got smacked. And pessimism was a, was a dominant theme in my family. And uh, my mother was just negative her whole life. I had that built into my brain. So there was so many, the way I did conflict, there were so many things away from my family of origin that were so dominating my discipleship for years, no matter how much Bible I read. And the genogram really freed me in that. It was, it was an incredible and, and it's a lifelong journey. Um, but what's so interesting, even to make an application to this pre- this present moment, uh, when this initial uh, killing of George Floyd uh, happened and the protest began, a few friends called me and said, Pete, you need to, you know, you need to make a statement on this. And uh, and I was just like, who cares what I think? I mean, I, I, I what am I going to say? So many people are speaking out of so many good things out there. And uh, I just had no intention of making a statement because I'm thinking what well, it doesn't matter what I think or say. And, uh, but that really came out of and comes out of, uh, Genogram partially in my whole struggle with personal power, because when you are severely beaten over a very long period of time, uh, it just, uh, your personal power is so diminished. It's challenging. It's really hard to actually experience it, to feel it, personal power and manage that. And I, remember I got an email from an African-American friend and just said, Pete, you know, I know you, I've known you for decades. Your silence is deafening. And, uh, you know, please, uh, you know, say something. And it was just an interesting moment for me because I realized, wow, my genogram, my family of origin is even even impacting the way I approach the issue. And uh, so, uh, l- let me just now apply the genogram in my own story first to race. Uh, and then we'll get to uh, corporate, etc. cetera. So again, we think individual level, think about your family over three to four generations in your history, but there's also a racial genogram. And uh, so in my case, I have grandparents on both sides of my family, mother and father. They came from Naples, immigrated to Brooklyn, New York, uh, of course, white skinned, uh, but being Italian Americans in New York City, uh, in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. Uh, that's That became its own culture, of course. Uh, but the mentality was, we don't trust anybody uh, of any race or culture outside of our own, even within our, our own uh, geographic area of Naples, Italy. And you were expected to be fiercely loyal to your family and culture. And I remember my father talking to me multiple times about the Irish Americans, who were the wave before the Italian Americans, and 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 the, and the nasty things they did to Italians, and uh, and then when it came to African Americans or people of color, I mean, uh, forget about it. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I remember, you know, the stories and and uh, the racism of Italians towards everyone uh, was enormous, but especially African Americans. Uh, I remember growing up and hearing stories of people being killed, uh, blacks and Latinos, for actually going through an Italian neighborhood uh, in, in New York. That, that's how irrational and how deep uh, the hatred was. And my family eventually uh, moved out of, uh, you know, Brooklyn. As people of color moved in, whites moved out. And Italians sure led the way on that. I remember uh, me bringing a young you know, a Jewish girl I met, I don't know, at eighth grade and very innocent and and brought her home to our house. And I remember my father saying to me afterwards, what are you doing? Don't ever bring this girl into our house again. Again, it was tremendous feelings towards Jewish people. Um, And he goes, don't ever do that again. So I, Again, I was raised in a very much Italian-American enclave, Roman Catholic schools. I mean, I where I interacted with African-Americans was primarily on the basketball court uh, in fighting and competition. And so there was a script I was handed to my family of origin about people of color and African-Americans. And they're inferior, second class. They'll hold you back. Stay away. Uh, you know, we're immigrants here. And even though I was second generation, uh, you know, third generation. There was a sense of you're fighting to make it in America, and we've got our own problems fighting to make it in the USA. Uh, if you got to, you know, step on those people, move ahead of them. Uh, much like many immigrants, you know, uh, that was the mentality. So I went to college, and I remember really interacting with Protestants for the first time. That was a shock, and all these folks of different white cultures. Um, and then I came to Christ at the age of 19 and had this dramatic conversion. But what was so interesting was as I was You know, came to Jesus. uh, I was immediately uh, taught and modeled that part of being a Christian was bridging racial barriers. That that this was part of the gospel. This was part of what it meant to be a Christian. And based on the Book of Acts and the Book of Ephesians. And uh, I remember uh, joining into varsity staff and going to a uh, joining an African American church uh, in the morning and a Spanish church in the afternoons and. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Spanish church in the, in the mornings and African-American church in, in the evening uh, and doing open air preaching uh, in the first campus that InterVarsity sent me to was a primarily uh, campus of minorities, African-Americans, Latinos. And I was doing open air preaching in the in the uh, student center and I remember a person people yelling at me and screaming at me you know you white this and you you, you and blank this and so I, mean, I i was thrust in getting an education i could tell you that in terms of whoa um, and so but i began to listen to stories obviously as soon as i came to christ i'm listening to stories of people who are talking to me about what it's like to, to be black in america and and what it's like to go into a store and be followed and being treated a second class or you know not having opportunities that i'd had and and uh, but I was like, oh, you know, it was a shocker. It was like, and so those stories began to change me somewhat as much as I could be present with the person at that point. But I began to get a a pretty good grasp on, you know, white privilege, at least from their perspective and uh, power and began to read like crazy, you know, books like Before the Mayflower and The History of the United States from a different perspective than what I had been fed and the autobiography of Malcolm X. I remember having a deep impact on me and uh, and being part of book discussions uh, as a student. And then following as a staff member and and then just broadening that to things like Joy Luck Cub and Club and Asian-Americans and their experience and going back to read things like Uncle Tom's Cabin. I was learning and growing and uh, living in a, you know, inner city neighborhood in, in New Jersey, uh, near Rutgers University, and uh, eventually went to seminary and, uh, uh, you know, and then did an internship in, in the South Bronx. But I, I, at that point, because of the way I came to Christ, it was so deeply embedded to me that that uh the my conversion and racial reconciliation were just this was expected, this was just the norm, this was biblical. And so there was never a question, once I finished seminary, that I was going to be involved in, in some kind of racial uh reconciliation because that was part of the gospel. And so we graduated seminary, my Jerry and I spent a year in Central America learning Spanish, came back to uh, new York City and we planted you know new uh, new life fellowship but I remember uh, when we first got back to New York and we spent a year being volunteers in a uh, in an all Spanish church uh, here in Queens and I remember for the first time being deeply we spoke Spanish now being deeply immersed in with refugees folks who had fled violence in El Salvador in particular in Guatemala <clears throat> and they you know stuck across the border and talking to me about you know, horrific stories. Uh, I mean, horrific story of at 16 years old of seeing friends, you know, decapitated or you know, hanging from a tree, and them having to flee in the middle of the night at 16 young girls, um, and caught in this crossfire with death squads, and uh, and here they were now in Queens and in a church, et cetera, and uh, and then at, even at that time, this is where there was from the time he came to Christ, there was. You know, tremendous tension and battles, and right wing and left wing around all these issues. Whether it was whether it was immigrants coming through the border of Mexico, whether it was a racial issue, and I just remember, you know, Second Timothy, uh, chapter four was always a great verse for me, which was, "Pete, keep your head in all situations." Paul writes, "Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge the duties of your ministry." So, you know, we're living in a moment. Uh, This moment's been happening actually for 400 years in American history. Uh, I do think it's an important moment, Uh, but we want to keep our head in all situations, think long-term, be prayerful and thoughtful. And so for me, when I planted, we planted New Life Fellowship Church in 1987, there was never a question about the location was going to be in in a place where we could build a multiracial church. And our mission would be bridge racial, cultural, economic, and gender barriers, uh, and that was going to be my contribution. My, my mix was going to be actually, uh, to see that come to, pl- come to fruition. Uh, we were going to reach the lost, et cetera, but we were going to live it out. And, um, it was an incredibly rich experience. Uh, I learned an enormous amount. Now new life has 75 plus nations in it. So we were dealing with Asians, Korean, Chinese, Filipinos, Indonesians, etc. Latinos from every country in Latin America, you know, African-Americans, um, uh, West Indians, uh, Eastern Europeans, uh, all kinds of Anglos. Uh, And I remember when we played our Spanish congregation and splits about five, six years into it, I didn't understand how much race had informed the history of Latin America. And uh, the split was partially over race. And uh, I remember a dark-skinned Dominican handed me a book called Americas by Peter Wynne, which gave the history of racism in every country in Latin America. And it was a mind blower for me. It was a shock for me uh, because I was so oblivious and, and got really blindsided by it. I just couldn't believe how deep the differences were in each country and around color in Latin America. So I've been trying to listen to people and, uh, in their context for years, Chinese, Koreans, Filipinos, Malaysians, South Asians, and I'm still learning a lot. I love being here in Queens, New York. It's a marvel and I've been immersed, uh, you know, for years now when you think about genograms and systems and institutions, it's the same thing. The sins are passed from generation to generation. So we've got the issue, for example, of native Americans, you know, and they what happened to them is, uh, uh, you know, we swept across the country here in the United States. We got 400 years of slavery uh, going back to before the Mayflower. Uh, we're dealing with deep generational dynamics. Um, and then it's in our institutions. And so we're not dealing with human sin, which is clearly, you know, central to all this, but we're dealing with something very large and demonic. And it's not just here in the United States, it's really in, it's a global issue. Um, color is a really significant issue um, globally. Uh, and so when you think about the birth of a country, uh, how a country's birth is significant, how a church's is birth is, is significant. And I, you know, our country, you know, Africans and Europeans came together, but one group was in chains uh, and the very Constitution, the way it was built of our founding fathers, uh, you know, three fifths of a man was a slave was three fifths of a person. And so you've got from George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, you've got from the founding fathers. And I love my country. You've got this shadow Uh and it was so interesting reading Condoleezza Rice recently. And she said she grew up in segregated Jim Crow, Alabama, where no one batted an eye if the police killed a black man. And it, would, it wouldn't even have made a footnote in the local press. And I thought, my goodness, you know, she's my age. Um, and so the American, the American, our country has a genogram. And so for those of you living in places like, you know, Europe or the UK uh, or Australia, you've got, you know, your own genogram. But then our American church has a genogram. And I I think of, you know, the history of the church in the United States, and then I think of the history of places like Azusa Street and the Great Revival that broke out there in 1906. Uh, Then I think of genograms having, I mean, denominations having a genogram. And I was talking to a friend from Africa uh, last week, and he was talking about the colonization in Africa. And and, uh, he was lamenting what's happening here in the United States, but then he was talking about colonization and the the vestiges that's left in, in Africa and the damage that's left And the whole way we treat the African church today, the rest of the world looks at the African church and it's it's globally. And uh, so I've tried to, you know, read broadly over the years because there's so much to learn historically from other countries as it bears weight and gives a kind of a unique lens to look at our own country in a fresh way. So I think of, again, I think of colonization in Africa. And I remember reading Leopold's Ghost uh, and when Belgium you know colonized the area that we consider the Congo today and how they pillaged and 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 sucked the riches out of that area and uh and the impact of what happened you know of the Belgian colonization of that part of Africa uh its impact that we still see today I think of India we have many you know South Asians from India many Indians here in, in New York City and and I've been involved in just that whole caste system and Dalits and 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 the and the deep racism of India and then you got you know, Koreans having suffered under, under the boot of Japanese over, you know, centuries of, of and you get into that history and like, oh my goodness. And then you look at China and their 5,000 years of history and how they view African-Americans in particular or Africans. And that's a whole other story. And our church having drawn so many Asians from, Latin America, from Asia uh, and all the messages coming there and their contribution— their involvement in our church, for example, in trying to bridge racial, cultural, economic, gender barriers, again, took us to a whole new level. And just even yesterday, I was reading again about Russia, the former Soviet Union, and how Russia was formed in the fires of earthly hell was the point of this Russian author. Millions being killed in the gulag. And if you can't understand Russia, unless you understand it's history. Uh, And again, their genogram of living under Stalin and and Lenin. So again, I... And so I always say to immigrants who come to the United States, our wounds and sins are now yours. It's part of your discipleship. Um, You may have come here for the American dream, but you're now part of the church of of the United States. And we have our wounds uh, that must be healed. And so you too must be involved in this racial um, reconciliation efforts with us because you're part of it. And it's very nuanced and and complex. So there's a multi-generational transmission of trauma that goes on. and, And we're living that today. We're in it. So when I came to Christ in uh, 1987, and then I had this conversion into Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. I'm sorry, I came to Christ in 1976. But in 1996 was this conversion into EH discipleship that we call it today. That changed everything. Because you understand that it opened up a whole new world. I didn't do grief and loss, for example. Uh, so I, my ability to, I didn't do sadness. I didn't really do feelings. So how could I enter into the story of someone else deeply because I didn't grieve my own losses. And I remember talking to an African-American member of our church who was upset about a white guy who he felt like didn't get this whole racial thing at all. And uh, he got no expression or emotion out of the white guy. And I said, listen, his wife is lonely uh, because he doesn't feel. He can't enter anybody's world, even someone born in the same neighborhood, the same race, the same social class, because he doesn't do feelings. His discipleship is so shallow he can't possibly enter your world right now. And uh, and so EH discipleship actually enabled us at New Life Fellowship Church to really break through uh, on a whole new level. And one area was the whole ability to do grief and loss uh, as a primary uh, issue of Scripture. And then, of course, the genogram everyone doing genograms and looking at history through genograms, and then, of course, out of that brokenness and vulnerability becoming a value, who sits at the table as we're having these very intense discussions around race and justice, we realize that the person, everyone needs to do their inner work, again, their genogram work, so that we know that you're speaking, it's not simply out of your triggers, because, again, we're talking about something very intense here, and so whether you're a you know Korean a chinese an indonesian or you're you know a latino uh from peru or ecuador african-american or from west indian but we're going to have this in white we're going to have a discussion at a table this is a very high level discussion this takes great maturity and character and um you need to have done some serious work in your own discipleship and uh, why because we're dealing with powers of principalities and this thing will blow up and that's why I want to recommend to you that you do a Genogram. And we've actually created a team transformational video. You can do it individually as well. Uh, if you go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash team, and I lead you through uh, doing your own Genogram. And it's got handouts with it as well and a Genogram sheet you use. Uh, and it takes it takes about an hour and 45 minutes to two hours to actually do it. Uh, and... I remember, so we we put it out probably about three, four months ago, and I've had pastors say to me, oh, we don't have that kind of time, two hours to do a genogram. Uh, And I'm like, listen, now uh, I want to tell you, it's not just, you want to do it with a racism application. You want to first do it for yourself and your personal family to look at issues. Then you need a second week to do just how your family did race. What are the scripts you got from your grandparents, your parents, generation to generation, Third week, you want to do your church or your denomination, and perhaps in the American church, what message do you got from there? You're talking about three to four weeks on Genogram, because again, if we're going to do a racial reconciliation and integrate into our lives the following of Jesus with issues of race and justice, we've got to do very serious discipleship. And that's the gift and contribution of emotionally healthy discipleship, it is actually giving you the tools to get beyond a shallow American uh, Western Christianity that doesn't really deeply change people, uh, but getting to one that changes you so deeply that it actually impacts where you live, the kind of person you'll marry, issues of race and justice and everything you do in life. So this is a long game, everybody. This is not a short one. Uh, So I want to invite you to get on a journey to actually change uh, and that's a slow, slow process, and then to begin to listen to people. But I'll I'll get into more of that next week. But let me encourage you to go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash team, and you're going to see some team transformational videos there with handouts. And let me Ed, strongly invite you, encourage you to do a genogram. And then you're going to want to dig into the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship course. And I'll touch on a couple of other core elements in the weeks to come. We'll talk about a deep spirituality next week, the importance of the Desert Fathers, and then the importance of being present and I-thou and being able to actually really listen. Uh, we would never, as a church, have gotten to where we did over these decades without a discipleship that was powerfully transformative. So look forward to being with you next week. I feel like I just dropped a couple of you know drops into a massive topic, but I look forward to picking it up next week. God bless you, everybody. You have a wonderful day. Look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.